afternoon, depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. I'm sitting in for Richard tonight. If you're a regular listener, you know that Richard gets these migraines from time to time. And uh, I'll be sitting in for Richard tonight. He should be back tomorrow night for uh, our next moon show. So tonight we have a very interesting show for you on psychic archaeology. And can it be a path forward to disclosure? And we, we have a first-time guest with us. Uh, Stefan Schwartz will be joining us shortly. Before we get to that, we're going to check in with Barbara Honiger, who, as you know, is um, behind our fundraising project, the Alan Bean painting that is signed by some 20 of the most well-known astronauts. And we're going to raffle that off to raise money and continue our research. So why don't we go ahead, uh, Keith, is Barbara with her? Why don't, why don't we bring Barbara on? I'm right here. Oh, you're right there, great. Do you want to tell the audience uh, briefly what what we've got going here with this fundraising project? I do, thank you so much for asking. Um, the bottom line of this fundraising project and uh, I think we're losing Barbara. Barbara, you're breaking up. What'd you say, Keith? You're breaking up. We we didn't get every other word what you said. But um if you Yeah, you're really breaking up, Barb. Um, We can't make out what you're saying. Uh, If you're on Wi-Fi, can you get closer to your router? Uh, All right, hold on. I'm really very close to it. We might have to reconnect on Skype. So, uh, Keith, why don't you do that? I'll go ahead and bring... I'm right by my router. Can you hear me now? Oh, that's better, yes. Is that better? Okay. Yeah. All right, the door was closed between me and the router, and my apologies for that. Um, okay, so I'll start over again. Um, we have a very exciting fundraising drive for Richard Hoagland and the other side of midnight for all of the projects that are so important to get done. And uh, if you go to my item for tonight, I just have one for tonight. Well, let's tell um, the people how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. And you scroll down and click on tonight's banner, the Sci Archaeology. Right. And that takes you to the show page. And on the show page, you'll find fast links to Barbara's items, my items, and Stefan's items, as well as our bios. Right. <clears throat> okay. But there's um there's an easier way every day, you know, 24/7, 365 and a quarter days a year, a year to get to the same information 
and that is just to go to the homepage for The Other Side of Midnight, theothersideofmidnight.com. Scroll down just a little bit, not far, and you will see the same information uh, as to how to donate to The Other Side of Midnight and all the exciting um, programs that Richard Hoagland um, has initiated. And uh, the bottom line of this fundraising campaign is that <clears throat> I uh, got the idea, gosh, it's quite a few months ago now, time flies, that I got the idea um, to go and see if there was an important um, available uh, print. I couldn't afford a, an actual painting, and there are very few of them left, by Alan Bean. Um, who was, of course, uh, an astronaut as well as a great space artist. And I found a great one. It's called Reaching for the Stars, and you should be able to see it if you've, if you've gone down to my item. And then I believe if you click on the uh, thumbnail of the image that it will get larger. Uh, it should, but maybe it, maybe it won't. But the exciting thing about this print which we're basically auctioning. And I'll explain briefly how the auction works. Um, around the frame, the inside frame of the print, are 23 or 24 actual signatures, not just images of signatures, but actual signatures of 23 or 24 NASA astronauts, including, of course, Alan Bean. So, and uh, if you go to my item, and you're all, or you're already there, you go to the Alan Bean uh, fundraising drive on the homepage, um, you will see the names of all of the astronauts whose actual signatures are around, around the actual print of his painting called Reaching for the Stars, uh, which is, as I recall, it's of himself, um, Reaching for a Star. <clears throat> so how it works is... Um, there is a goal for the fundraising drive. Richard has put it at $100,000, which personally I think is too high. Um, but nevertheless, that's what he wants to do for now. He could change that in the future. But the bottom line is, whatever the ultimate final goal of the fundraising drive is, uh, if you go and donate, uh, when the goal is reached, the final goal, and again, it could change, Maybe not, maybe, maybe so in the future. Once that final goal is reached, whatever it is, whoever has given the most to the fundraising drive will get this incredible print. So um, it's really not about getting the print. That's just kind of the cherry on the top uh, of the cake, if you will. It's really about supporting the other side of midnight and the important goals um, of the other side of midnight and Richard Hoagland and all of us here who are regulars on the show and all of you listeners. So I encourage you, please donate as much as you can. Richard needs it. The other side of midnight needs it. Right now, he really needs $1,000 to repair the Accutron because that's what the repair company is telling him it costs. And he needs to get that thing repaired ASAP because he is trying to get it in time to Maria Wheatley so that she will have it repaired and functioning at on the Giza Plateau with the Pyramid and the Sphinx and all of the other amazing monuments there in by Cairo, Egypt, 
at the end of March. She's only going to be there, I think, the 29th and 30th or 31st of March. So please donate as generously as you can right now so that he can, at a very minimum, get that Accutron uh, repaired like this week. Okay, thanks, everybody. And I'd like to see the Accurton make its way to Arches Park if uh, I can get some volunteers to go there and um, I can fund them with uh, some drones and travel expenses and hotel and so forth and go there and send the drones into these hidden entrances um, and use the Accutron to measure the hyperdimensional fields in Park Ave and Delicate Arch and so on. So, with that said, uh, why don't we bring on our main guest for tonight? He's a first-time guest, and we're we're thrilled to have him on the show. Uh, Stephen A. Schwartz is a distinguished associated scholar for the California Institute of Human Science, consulting faculty of Saybrook University, and a Vial Foundation fellow. He's an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction columnist for the journal Explore, and editor of the daily web publication, the theschwartzreport.net, in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. He also writes regularly for the Huffington Post. His other academic and research appointments include Senior Samueli Fellow for Brain, Mind, and Healing of the Samueli Institute, Founder and Research Director of the Mo Mobius Laboratory, Director of Research of the Rhine Research Center, <clears throat> excuse me, and Senior Fellow of the Philosophical Research Society. Government appointments include Special Assistant for Research and Analysis to the Chief of Naval Operations, Consultant to the Oceanog Oceanographer of the Navy. He has also been Editorial Staff Member of National Geographic, associate editor of Sea Power, and staff reporter and feature writer for the Daily Press and the Times-Herald. For 40 years, he has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of space and time. Mr. Schwartz is part of the small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research, along with uh, Russell Targ, who we've had on the show a few times, and uh, Hal Putoff and some of the other folks. And Stefan is also the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. Using remote viewing, he discovered Cleopatra's Palace, Mark Antony's Timonium, ruins of the lighthouse of Pharaohs, and sun sunken ships along the California coast and in the Bahamas. He also uses remote viewing to examine the future. And you can read more about Stephen. Uh, we have his bio there, and you can also go to his website where there's lots of fascinating information there for you. So, Stephen, with that, uh, welcome to the other side of midnight. Happy to join you. Now, let's, uh, before we get into the meat of things, why don't we go back and talk about your beginnings um you know like with russell targ he was doing his magic as a teenager and he had the impression he was picking up um 
mind images from the audience and that kind of led him to these consciousness studies and now was in your upbringing was there any kind of moment like that or was there an aspect of your early life that sort of heralded or or led you to what would become your life career yes i woke up when i was 24 i um was at a party that Truman Capote gave on Fire Island, and um, I was coming down the hall from going to the bathroom, and I looked in a mirror and very spontaneously said to myself, without any really thought to it, you are becoming an unattractive person because your values are not right. And I didn't even know what that meant, but it was kind of scary, and I left the party slept on the beach, went back to New York, where I was working as a screenwriter for Screen Gems, and got in my car and drove back to Virginia, where I'm from, to my family's farm, and was the only time in my life I've ever been depressed. And I, because I just didn't know what was wrong, and I didn't know what to do. I'd been quite successful at the things that I'd done, and seemed to be doing all the things you were supposed to do. And uh, clearly, however, something wasn't right. And one day I was sitting on the uh, screen porch of my family's property down in Tidewater, Virginia. And I looked up and there was a couple, middle-aged couple, walking in the gardens. This was a property that had 17 acres of gardens. And there was this couple dressed as if they were New Yorkers. He had on a gray double-breasted suit, and she had on this rather handsome linen dress. And they didn't look like people, any, there weren't anybody I knew, but they weren't dressed like anybody that you would see in rural Virginia. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they saw me looking at them, and they came over to the porch, and I opened the door, and the woman came in, and and uh, instead of introducing herself, which is what you would expect, the first thing she said to me was, do you believe in reincarnation? Hmm. And I never thought about it. I grew up in a family that had no interest whatever in religion. My parents, uh, my father was a physician, an anesthesiologist. My mother was a surgical nurse. They cared about consciousness and science, medicine. So I didn't, I just didn't know anything about it. And I said to her, I don't know, uh, I don't know anything about it, but it does seem kind of symmetrical. And then I said to her, but wait, you know, who are you? Why are you here? And she said to me, I'm here because I had a dream last night that told me to come up here and introduce you to Edgar Casey. Do you know who Edgar Casey is? <laughs> yes, and I do. I said, no, I have no idea who Edgar Casey is. And, and she, uh, I said, but how could you possibly know how to get here? We were, we, our property, a couple hundred acres, was at the end of a 10-mile school bus road, and our lane was a mile long. And I said, how could you possibly get here? And she said, well, in the dream, I saw where to turn, and I wrote it down, and uh, we just drove it. 
And she said, um, I'd like to introduce you to, to Edgar Casey and, and give me your telephone number. And I gave her my card. And she said to me, uh, would you like to meet Thomas Jefferson? And I'd gone to the <laughs> University of Virginia. I was an Eccles scholar at the University of Virginia. And I said, yes, is he back? And she said, yes, he is. And just about that time, a car drove down the lane with a young couple in it. And she said, we'll be in touch. And she left and got in the car and drove away. And I thought to myself, what in the world just happened? But about a week later, I got a call. And it was a guy. He said his name was Thomas Jefferson Davis. And um, he invited me down for the weekend. Gave me the address, and so I said, okay. And so I got in the car and, and drove down to Virginia Beach, which is about two hours south of, of Gloucester County, which is where I was. And uh, I got to the address, and there was a young man who was up on a ladder hanging a sign for what was a sandal shop and, and sort of hippie clothes. This is 19... Uh, 64, I guess. And I said to him, I'm looking for T.J. Davis. And she said, well, she's not here, but uh, Joan is here and she'll take you up to the ARE. And around the corner came this really quite lovely woman, beautiful lavender eyes. And she said, I'm supposed to take you up to the ARE. Do you know what that is? I said, no. She said, that's the uh, organization that studies Edgar Casey, and I said I don't have any idea who Edgar Casey is. So we got in my car and we drove up uh, Virginia Beach, up Atlantic Boulevard, and I got out and and uh, she took me into the building, into what was the library, and there was a whole wall of these green loose leaf notebooks. And she said, these are the readings. And she explained to me what her understanding of a reading was. And at random, I just reached for one of the books and pulled it down and opened it up. And I can tell you that when people tell you your hair can stand on end, they're not lying. I opened this up and it was a reading given in 1936 for a woman, and he said that she had been a member of the Essene community <coughs> at Kerbet Qumran, and that she'd been a teacher of astrology. Again, she gave, he gave this reading in 1936, and I read this, and I mean, I was just stunned is the only word I can use, because before I was drafted and went into the army, uh, when I was working at Geographic, the last story that I had been working on was about uh, the Essene community and uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly. Hmm. And I knew that in 1936, there was not a person alive who knew that there was an Essene community at Kerbet Qumran. No one knew that women were involved with the Essenes. Josephus, who was the principal authority, said it was a schismatic order of Jewish monks. And no one had any knowledge that they were at all interested in astrology. But all of that is true. 
but it wasn't discovered until 11 years after he gave the reading in 1947, when a young tribes, uh, Bedouin tribes boy was chucking rocks into a cave and he heard it go thunk. And he went down into the cave and found the, the uh, amphora or urns, which contained the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they got them and the archaeologists came and they excavated the site and they found female skeletons. And the scrolls themselves are obsessed with astrology, which nobody knew. So I thought to myself, where could this guy have gotten this information? I mean, nobody knew it, and I knew that for sure. So how could he possibly know in 1936 something that wouldn't be discovered in 1947? And this went against everything you've been taught in school and in life. Well, it didn't go against. I mean, it, yes, but um, I mean, first yes. of all, um, it was inconsistent, let's put it that way, mm. with what we knew about the Essene community. And so I got I got very interested. And I called up and said to the farm, uh, it's going to take me a little more than a weekend. And it eventually took me about six years. And I decided uh, the next day that that I was going to read all of the readings from the first one to the last one. And I met Gladys Davis, who was uh, Hugh, uh, Edgar Casey's secretary and archivist. And I told her what I wanted to do. And she's nobody's ever done that. In fact, as far as I know, I'm the only person who's ever done it. And she said, I said, can you help me? And she said, oh, yes, I'm fascinated that you're that interested. Yes, I will help you. And so I set out to read all the readings, which I did. And I read all the, you know, the other sort of consciousness people from the 19th century, Alice Bailey, Rudolf Steiner, uh, Blavatsky. Uh, Leadbeater. Uh, yeah, Leadbeater, all of that. And then about 1967, uh, I decided I needed to read what science had to say about what I now understood as consciousness and the idea that there was an aspect of consciousness that was independent of space-time, that all consciousness was not physiologically based. So I started reading all of the parapsychological uh, journals, as well as many books, and I read every journal that had been published from the first one up to the present day at that time, 67. And in 68, I began doing experiments. And I, I built, a, 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 I created a grid in my back garden in Virginia Beach where I'd moved. And uh, I would bury mason jars with things in them or 35 millimeter canister, film canisters with things in them. And I made a mimeograph of the, the the outline of the grid, and I would ask people all over the world that I knew, uh, I want you to, I'd send them a copy of that, and then I would say, I would like you to locate which grid contains the, the thing that I've buried, uh, so can you locate it, and can you tell me, uh, describe it for me. And now, did I, you know anyone else that was doing this work? No, um, 
No. No, but, I, but the oldest remote viewing, well, I'll let me finish this part of it. Anyway, I discovered people could do it. And they were right about 70% of the time. And that got me very interested. And because I had an interest in, and had come out of an anthropological background, in, in among other things, um, I started reading in the archaeological literature because it occurred to me that one of the most rigorous things I could do would be to locate archaeological sites that were known to exist, but everybody agreed they didn't know where they were or what you would find if you got there. So it would be a pure triple blind experiment, which is what I cared about. I wanted something that was absolutely impeccable and that could not be refuted uh, or couldn't be argued, you know, that it was just a, a statistical outcome. And if you'd done the statistics differently, you wouldn't have gotten that result and all that kind of stuff. Because if someone tells you where to go to find something and describes what you're going to find when you get there, and you can prove that not a single soul on the earth knew that, and you can create an unimpeachable chronology, which is what I did, um, then you move past statistics and you can begin talking about non-local consciousness, not only as a reality, but you can begin to look at how does it operate, which is what interested me. Most research that's, that's uh, done had been done up to that time in parapsychology was to prove does it exist and then that's still going on by the way but I did what I had spent all that time reading the casing material and all the parapsychology journals and all the rest of it and and I didn't have any doubt about the reality of it what I wanted to know was how does it work how can you make it work better can you do anything of practical utility with it and what is it telling us about being a human being in the matrix of consciousness. So those were the questions that I had, not is it real? And uh, I've been following that ever since. Hmm. Well, that's quite the beginning. Now, at that time, the mainstream science was not much into the non-local consciousness. Would you agree with that? Well, uh, if you look at if you look at history, the the uh, uh, the reason that consciousness and science split was a result of the of the Council of Trent uh, between 1545 and 1563. The Roman Curia, the Roman Catholic Curia, had a series of 25 meetings, and science was really just beginning at that point, and they issued an edict in which they said, things which have to do with spirit read consciousness. That's our world. And things that have to do with physical reality, that's the world of you new guys in science. And as long as you stay in your world and don't come into our world, then everything's fine. If you come into our world and we can get our hands on you, we're going to torture you and kill you. Jesus. And... And that split consciousness from science, not for everybody, but for most people. And that went on until the 19th century when uh, a number of things occurred and parapsychology, psychology, psychiatry, 
uh, anthropology, they all begin in a, within about a 50-year period of each other, and they began to get interested in, in, in consciousness. Wow. So you're in Virginia, you're, you're on the beach there, you're burying these things, and you're contacting people. How did you pick people? How did you find these people? This is before the internet, obviously, and things were very different back then. So how did you go about organizing this project where you contact people? Like, how did you get people's names? And how did that come about? That must have been a very trying experiment. No, not at all. They were just people I knew. Oh. They were just people I knew who I thought might be interested in doing it. And, I mean, we can talk when we get back from your break. We can talk about who can do this. The oldest recorded remote viewing is in the 46th chapter of Herodotus's Histories of the World from the 5th century BCE. And it's done exactly as we would do it today. And I had read that when I was in university, so I, I hadn't understood it at the time. But as I thought about it, I realized that that was the oldest remote viewing on record. In those days, I called it distant viewing. That was the Oracle of Delphi? Yes, it was the Oracle of Delphi. All right, we're, you're on the other side of midnight.com. Uh, we'll be right back after this short break. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 
33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight.com. I'm Jonathan Womack sitting in for Richard Hoagland. And we're talking with Stefan Schwartz, who's one of the handful of founders of remote viewing. And you were just about to tell us about the early remote viewing of uh, of Delphi, Stefan. Do you want to go ahead with that? Well, I mean, the story, it's in, as I said, in the 46th chapter of Herodotus, uh, histories of the world. Herodotus is generally recognized as the father of history, of recording history. Uh, he's the first historian, and he tells the story of Croesus, who we think of as rich as Croesus, and the reason we do that is because he was the first person, first monarch to, to coin uh, money. And he was attacked by uh, uh, or was was told he was going to be attacked by Darius, the king of the Persians, uh, which was a much bigger empire. Uh, he was the king of the Lydians. Lydia, what was Lydia, is now part of Turkey. And so he wasn't quite sure what to do. So he decided that he would go to the seven oracles of of the ancient Greek world. There is a long tradition of uh, oraculars, oracular temples in which people channel higher consciousness. And in the Greek world, there were seven of them. And the, he assembled seven teams, seven embassies, uh, teams of people, and he told them that they were to go to the each one to a particular oracle and that they were waiting. They were to wait until the hundredth day. And on the hundredth day, they were to go into the oracle and ask the oracle, "What is Croesus, son of Aleates, king of the Lydians, doing today?" And um, and so that didn't make any sense to them. But off they went. And the only answer we know is the or is the answer from the Delphi oracles, the Pythonesses they were called, young women who were put in a kind of hanging in a kind of tripod on a seat over a, over a, a, a crack in the earth from which hydrocarbons that produced uh, psychedelic experiences uh, came up. And 
So on the hundredth day, they went in as they were told to do. And before they could even ask their question, the Pythonist said, um, I can count the, the sands of time, that is the hundred days, and I see the great ocean, that is the ocean that they had, they came on a ship to where Delphi was. And I, I see a, a bronze urn and a bronze lid uh, hanging from a tripod over a fire, and I see a, a, a tortoise, and, and I think, let's see, a hare. No, wait a minute. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Anyway, I, I see these things being carved up and thrown into this boiling urn of water. And it didn't make any sense to them at all. But they wrote it all down as they had been told to do, and they all went back. And when they all got back, uh, Croesus brought them in, the, the, the seven teams. And when the Delphi team spoke, he got down and bowed and gave obeisance because they were the ones who were correct. Croesus, thinking about this, today we, by the way, would call this an outbound experiment. Uh, Croesus thinking, well, I need to do something that you couldn't predict. And so he had a big bronze uh, cauldron brought into his courtyard and a fire built under it and, and and a bronze lid. And he cut up these things, these animals, and and uh, threw them into the fire, into the urn uh, uh, or the cauldron, because he thought, well, if they said, well, Croesus is sitting on his throne, you know, giving orders, well, he's a king. That's what kings would be doing. But nobody would expect him to be doing what he was actually doing. And so they recorded it and Herodotus recorded it. And that's how we know about it. And as I say, it is the oldest recorded non-local perception experiment in history. Well, it's we ironic because since then we seem to have drawn further away, at least, you know, science and metaphysics have seemed to, uh, they're separate things in most people's minds when in reality they're not, and they seem to understand that back in the day with Herodotus. They did, I told you, the, the, the key to the split is the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563. Uh, mm. and, and that, I mean, they killed a whole bunch of people because the Inquisition, if you started talking about what they called spirit, today we'd call consciousness, and they could get hold of you, they would torture you or burn you alive. And so science, which was just beginning anyway, had so much to focus on that um, it just, that, that, that studying consciousness just wasn't a big issue that, that attracted them. There were so many other things that you could measure very specifically and it's not that there were no people interested. Uh, Newton, for instance, not only speaks about gravity, but he also was very interested in alchemy. The why he was interested in those two things, we don't know because it didn't leave a record. But in any case, people have been doing non-local perception work. In the 11th century in Germany, for instance, most of the... Um, metals that were mined were found using dowsing. And dowsing is just a form of remote viewing, a, a kind of binary remote viewing uh, using a stick mm. or a 
cleft stick. Anyway, so it has always been a part of every culture. It just hasn't been a main part of science until, as I said, end of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, when it became obvious that something was going on and a small group of scientists, it certainly is not the dominant group, materialism, physicalism is the dominant paradigm, but increasingly it was clear that that, that paradigm didn't answer all the questions. And so researchers began to look at the issue. Um, when I uh, got into it, as I said, in the 60s, the two of the big discussions going on were, is this an electromagnetic phenomena? And a lot of people thought it were, thought they were. That is that there was a sender and a receiver and a signal, and it was kind of like a walkie-talkie. And a lot of people wrote about that, and uh, researchers began to explore that. Um, and by the early seven, by the late sixties, early seventies, sixty-nine, seventy, I was I was asked to become the special assistant to the chief of naval operations, and I uh, uh, accepted that job. I was part of the small team that transformed the American military from an elitist conscription organization that was strongly white supremacy to an all-volunteer meritocracy that was racially and gender neutral. I'm quite proud of being involved with that. Hmm. But in addition, a, a, a friend of mine took over and became the head of the CIA, and he, he began to send me translations. I don't know how he got them. Translations of the work of a Russian researcher named Leonid Vasilyev. And Vasilyev asked the question that was the big burning question, is this electromagnetic? So he put people down into caves and put them down into uh, mine shafts and he put them in Faraday cages. It's a kind of a device, a, a, a space that's been shielded from electromagnetic radiation. And, and he asked them to do non-local perception tasks and they could do them just as well as when they were on the surface. So he gradually, very, he was a very meticulous researcher, he gradually got it down to only one part of the EM spectrum could possibly uh, be the source, uh, ELF, extreme low frequency, three to 300 hertz. But he went to Admiral Gorshkov, who was the father of the Soviet Blue Water Navy, and he asked him if he could put somebody aboard a submarine and do this experiment. And for whatever reason, I don't know, because he never recorded it, uh, Admiral Gorshkov wouldn't do it. And so he wrote all this up in a series of papers, which were sent to the uh, Central Committee, because this was all being done quite secretly. And I got copies of it, as I said, and I looked at that. So I went to Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the American nuclear navy and the nuclear submarines and I asked him if he would let me do the experiment and he thought about it for a while and uh, he came back to me about a week later and said no I don't think I'm going to do this because 
it will leak out. The media will find out about it. And there'll be a lot of discussion about it. And people will start talking about the nuclear subs, which have the ballistic missiles, uh, which most people don't even know exist. And most Americans have no idea there's a, a whole fleet of nuclear-powered submarines going around the world that contain nuclear missiles. And that's part of what's called the triad, defense triad. So he said, I just, I, it'll just get a lot of publicity and we don't need it. I don't want it. So I didn't think it would ever happen. But um, uh, several years later, after I left government to go off and do research, uh, I decided, as I said earlier, that, that archaeology was very attractive to me because if you could find something that everybody knew existed, or if they didn't know it existed, you could locate it and then describe what you'd find when you went there, then you had an unimpeachable experiment. So I was quite attracted to that and um, decided that's I would, I would use archaeology, uh, I'd build a protocol about how to do it, and I created what has come to be known as the Mobius Consensus Protocol. But anyway, I got offered, I went out to Arizona to write The Secret Vaults of Time, which is a book about all of the use of non-local perception prior to my getting involved. And so it covers all of this work that was done. I mean, a number of very interesting Frederick Bly Bonds reconstruction of Glastonbury Cathedral, the discovery of the great Olmec head by Clarence Wyant, uh, Bronze Age sites that were found. Anyway, so I, I went out to Arizona to write this book and I got offered a fellowship in Los Angeles at the Philosophical Research. And I went out, and while I was out there, I stayed with a friend of mine who had retired from the Navy and was the, had been the deputy director of, of uh, naval research. And he and another friend of mine, uh, Don Walsh, and Don Keach, uh, uh, Walsh made the deepest dive in history, the deepest dive that will ever be made in the Marianas Trench in the Challenger Deep. And um, while we were having lunch one day, he said to me, you know that crazy experiment you wanted to do with submarines? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I said, but you know, where are you gonna get a submarine? And I told him about Rickover. And, and he said, well, as it happens, we have a submarine, a research submarine that's coming down here um, early this summer. This was in the early fall or in the early spring, rather, that's coming down and we're willing to pay three days to let you do your experiment. And, and this was this Project Deep Quest? This is Project Deep Quest. And so, um, and I decided I would film it also so that there would be no question about what happened. I've always been extremely meticulous and therefore have never been attacked as so many researchers have uh, because I designed my experiments so that if you want to take me on, basically what's going to happen is I'm going to humiliate you. And, um, and I've told several deniers that who thought they would take me on. But in any case, so I, he said, I'll do this experiment. And so I designed Project DeepQuest, which was an experiment. To The first part was to 
reach through the ocean to the bottom and locate a previously unknown wreck. Now, part of the reason for this was, as I said earlier, Vasiliev had eliminated everything but ELF, and a guy named Michael Persinger up in Laurentia University in Canada had published a paper in which he argued also that it was that uh, what we call non-local perception uh, was electromagnetic in nature and involved ELF. Um, what he didn't know, because it was classified, but I did know, was that the Navy had spent about $125 million because they got interested in ELF as well as a way of communicating with the deep ocean submarines without bringing them to the surface. Because if they got even, even not, forget about surfacing, if they just got close to the surface, uh, the Soviet satellites would pick up the heat from the reactors, the nuclear reactors. So they wanted to keep the submarines submerged enough that they couldn't be detected by the satellites. And they had created a project called a project, the ELF project, then became Project Sanguine. And they had discovered two things. One, which Vasiliev didn't know because he was never able to do it. One was how deep you had to go. And two was, and equally important, in some ways more important, how much information you could transmit. And it turns out with ELF, uh, you can only transmit a little bit of information. I mean, like number, one, two, three, four. In fact, if you saw a movie called The Search for Red October, there's a scene where they get a transmission while they're submerged, and it's like one, two, three, four, and they have to go to a book and they open the book up, and one, two, three, four means target this city. And I had gotten the idea for what has come to be known as associated remote viewing. In 1973, I was writing a speech for Elmo Zumwalt, and he had asked me to provide some historical references in the speech I was writing. And I, among other things I came across, was the Battle of the Nile, the Battle of... of uh, Abukir Bay, and um, in that battle between Lord Nelson, the British commander, and Admiral Bourrier, the French commander, Nelson realized that when his, in order to attack the French fleet, he would have to string out his first line ships, 65-gun cannons, um, and that they would be so spread out that because when you fire cannons, black, black powder cannons, you create so much smoke that he wouldn't be able to communicate with the, the ships that were a distance away. So his, his came up with a solution. He developed a set of flags. So like a red flag with a white stripe meant tack left and a blue flag with a white dot meant tack right. And he had his frigates, that's like a destroyer, in, but in the sailing navy, a frigate was a smaller ship. And he would send his frigates, this was his plan, he would send his frigates up and down the line of his ships, flying these flags, and in that way, he would be able to communicate this associative thing that I'm talking about. And I thought at the time, because I was, as I said, I was knowledgeable about the ELF issue that the Navy was looking at 
And when they discovered you could only transmit a very little bit of information, I knew from the experiments that I'd already done that that in a remote viewing, you can get a lot more information than could possibly be explained by ELF. So my idea was, first of all, to see if people could, all over the world could, if I sent them a map, could penetrate the, the seawater to the sea floor and describe a previously unknown wreck and describe what it would look like and where it would be and, and you know how it got there, all of that. And then what, made you, Go ahead. what made you select Catalina Island as because the that's where the submarine was? Okay, the submarine came from a company called Heiko, and Don Keach and Don Walsh had taken over the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies at the University of Southern California, and they had a facility on Catalina Island, and that's where this submarine came down to do its sea trials. So I was limited to where the submarine could go. It wasn't that big an area, but big enough. Um, in any case, uh, so I asked people all over the world to fill out the map, and they located a, a, a different places, but a group of them located the same place. And that's what I look for is consensus. Now, this was... Ingo Swan and Hella Hamid from well yes but they're only a piece of it that you 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 got two things mixed up okay so I, there were about seven people that were going to do it I did do it not we're going to did do it I also wanted to have an independent witness scientist who would attest to everything that was going on and I asked Ann Kale who was the one of the directors of the Jet Propulsion Lab satellite program. And I also decided to film it. And so I arranged to, to film it. I knew about films, how to do it. And um, so they located a ship. And at the last minute, I was going to ask Alan Vaughn and George McMullen to be the on-site people. But at the last minute, Alan came down with a very bad flu. And George had a co-worker who got, whose wife was pregnant and who had a premature delivery. And so he, the husband took off time and George could not take off time. He was a parts manager at a Chrysler dealership in Nanaimo, Canada. So at the last minute, I had just literally just met Ingo Swan and um, I had really just gotten to know him and Ed May and uh, Hella Hammond. And so I, instead of having George and Alan, I asked Ingo and Hella if they would do it uh, to be the ones who were, while submerged, attempted to describe an outbound person. Now, now I, you had, just to be clear, these seven people were instructed to <clears throat> tap into their non-local consciousness and see if they could find any uh, previously unrecorded ships. So they basically, they drew a circle around a spot on a map. And then when you got, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the seven drawings from these seven people, you found that uh, how many of them had drawn the same 
circle on the same uh, grid point on the map. So did all seven of them or? No, no, no. Uh, four of them had, uh, they had picked a number of places, mm -hmm. but there was one place that several of them had agreed to. Mm. And so that was the one that I was targeted on. And uh, so, yes, I sent them a map. What I do is I, I take a map, uh, I take the colors off, I make a blueprint out of it, really. I take off the title, the uh, names, uh, I take off the colors, and I, so it's just kind of blue and gray. And I sent those out as, in mail. And I, and I also had a series of questions which I put in sealed envelopes. And I asked them, first of all, to open the envelopes in order. And the first question was, locate a previously unknown wreck on the seafloor that is in, in this area of the map. And that's what they did. And then I asked, please describe, question number two, please describe what I will find when I go to the place you have located. And so they give you all kinds of information. And um, so I gave that over to the deputy director of the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies, a guy named Brad Veek, and he made a master map and we used the master map. And when we decided to, to do the archaeological part of the experiment, um, I had a surface ship go out and drop a pinger, uh, a kind of radio homing device that goes ping, 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 so that when we were submerged, we could only go to that one site. So we couldn't, you know, we stumble across something else. You know, that, that would be the criticism. Oh, well, you went down and you just stumbled across something. Mm -hmm. no, the pinger was right over where the site was. And right at the end, uh, it described a Y-shaped object. They described, they said it was a wooden ship. It had gone down about uh, in the early uh, 20th century, 1906, 1907, that uh, it had... Uh, had a, a kind of steam winch on the surf on the deck that had exploded and set ship to the fire to the ship and that it caused the ship to sink and that we would find the winch and then the night before we did the experiment Hella Hammond came back to me and said I think you're going to find a and made a drawing of it I think you're going to find a large granite block five by six by seven and that's wonderful stuff because that the other thing I look for in addition to consensus is low a priori. So if you tell me I'm going to find a ship and it's going to have an anchor, well, of course, it's a ship. Of course, it has an anchor. But you tell me I'm going to find a large granite block that's five by six by seven. I don't expect to hear that. Yeah. So they, they had described for me what I would find. And we went out. And okay, we're going to have to hold it there, Stefan. Uh, let's pick up on that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. I'm your host tonight, Jonathan Womack, and we will return shortly. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.